Open your Bibles to Romans 14, to a chapter, as we said last week, strikes right at the heart of where all of us live. It's a passage dealing with matters of conscience, and particularly how the conscience, or we might even say issues of tradition, or issues of opinion, and sometimes issues of preference, cause friction and division within the body of Christ. And Paul's writing to a church who was going through this like so many churches do. They were experiencing division within their body between various groups. And they were breaking down along lines of, as we said, issues over food and diet, issues over holidays and Sabbath days, issues over drinking wine and and those kinds of things. And on one side of the issue were those who felt freedom in so many of these categories They felt free to eat whatever they wanted, drink whatever they wanted, to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, on whatever day they wanted, without reference to a holy day, without reference to a Sabbath day, without reference to any kind of law, at least Old Testament law. And they were impatient with those who didn't feel the same freedoms that they had. On the other side of the issue, there were those who genuinely felt conflicted with all of these things, their mind and their conscience were bothered. Try as they might, when they were served certain foods, or when they are asked to do certain activities at certain times, or whenever they were presented with with opportunities to to engage in some of these uh, social behaviors, they were hesitant, they were reluctant, they felt misgivings, they felt senses of guilt within them, and it afflicted them. And when these certain holy days rolled around, when the Sabbath day came around, they were just more comfortable keeping rules and observing those days and felt like they were doing something wrong if they weren't. And they struggled with those who were so free. They felt like that These people couldn't possibly be so serious about their religion if they were so unserious about these kinds of guidelines and these kinds of rules. And as we said last week, these may not be the issues that other churches face. You can look down through time and history and personal experience and you can see all kinds of things that divide people, whether it's preferences over the kind of uh, drinks that you have or the music you listen to or the entertainment that you pursue, education, wardrobe, all kinds of things. These days, even health care becomes a dividing point over which people will separate. And Paul's giving here some important and enduring principles that define for us how we are to respond in the kinds of situations we find ourselves in when we are at odds with another Christian over these kinds of issues, these kinds of situations. And the primary principle, the primary command, the one that summarizes all of it, you remember right there in verse 1 of chapter 14, is that we welcome these brothers and sisters. We welcome those who have differences. He says it there, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And you go all the way to the end of the section in chapter 15, verse 7, When Paul rounds out this discussion and he repeats it, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I gave you some examples last week of how this word is used, this word welcome. It is used in one very poignant way in Acts 18.26 when Priscilla and Aquila took 
the, uh, took the, uh, the teacher, Apollos, aside. That's the way it's translated. It's actually the same word. They invited him in, if you will, to their circle. They, they welcomed him. They accepted him. They brought him in, no doubt, to their home. They realized that the apostle, excuse me, the, the, the teacher Apollos was saying something different than what they knew the scripture taught. They knew that he was not quite as accurate as he needed to be. And rather than pouncing on him or pushing him away or finding reasons to divide from him, they took him aside. They brought him into their circle so that they could more accurately instruct him. And I'm confident that they didn't begin that by beating him over the head with all of their best arguments it was no doubt a welcoming that was warm and loving and maximizing the unity that they had in Christ the fellowship that they had over the gospel and on that basis bringing him in so that they could build a bridge of relationship and better instruct him in the truth this is the word you remember that Paul gives to Philemon to welcome to accept his slave his former slave Onesimus who had run away bring him back in don't ostracize him don't reject him and so this is the point the whole point of Romans 14 is is despite the differences that you might have over conscience or preference or opinion or tradition or prudence or judgment or whatever it might be with another Christian despite those differences you need to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Maintain fellowship with one another as God has welcomed and maintained fellowship with you. Gather with one another. Receive one another because God has received you unconditionally. Now that command is just really an extension of what Paul began to say all the way back in chapter 12 when he says at the very opening of that chapter, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. So you can't understand what Paul says in this chapter. You can't follow what Paul says in this chapter if you have lost sight of the scope of God's mercy in your life. If you've begun to think lightly about the kind of mercy that God had for you, if you've become uh, uh, convinced that God somehow was obligated to accept you, if you began to ponder and, and, and imagine that you were more acceptable or more welcomed by Him because of something in your life, then it's gonna have a, you're going to have a hard time accepting others. But if you understand Paul's appeal by the mercies of God, that it's not on the basis of your virtue, your intelligence, even your accuracy in the things of God. This is not the primary issue. It's the mercy of God that is supposed to control you. And it causes you then to present yourself to God, a living sacrifice in order to do His will no matter what it is, holy and acceptable. Now Paul goes through chapter 12 telling us what some of those acts of God's will is. He goes through chapter 13 telling us what some of those deeds of God's will is, what the holy and acceptable will of God is. And we get to chapter 14. And he's continuing to tell us how to respond to the mercies of God. He's writing to help us understand that this living sacrifice looks a certain way in these situations. It means, this proving out of the will of God, this acceptable will of God, means 
that even when you have these differences with brothers and sisters, you accept them. You sacrifice yourself for the purpose of demonstrating the same mercy. And he wants to really develop within the Roman church. As every godly and faithful pastor wants to develop in their church. He wants to really develop a church that is shaped by the compassion and the kindness of the gospel. He wants to develop a church that is, that is really conforming to the kind of compassion that God has shown to them. Now we uh, began last week breaking down what this looks like into several principles that equip us to respond in the way that Paul wants us to respond, to accept one another in the way he wants us to accept one another. The first that we saw last week was simply this, you don't look down on those who don't have the freedom of conscience that you have. You don't look down on those who don't have the freedom of conscience that you have. He begins there in verse uh, 2 with the illustration, the person believes he may eat any, anything while the weak person, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person believes he can eat only vegetables. So some of these believers understood their freedom in the new covenant. They understood that they weren't bound by, by some sort of dietary code, especially out of the Old Testament, that they were free to eat anything. Others, who Paul just calls them weak, he doesn't categorize himself in this class. He understood the freedoms that he had in the gospel, but he understands that there are some who are weak. That is to say, their conscience is bothered by eating certain foods. They were probably from Jewish backgrounds. They were probably raised to, to avoid certain meats. And they had not reached a point where they were comfortable in their conscience that this was pleasing, this was honoring to God. They hadn't matured enough in their understanding of the Scripture, which declares all things to be lawful, all things to be clean. And so they were still clinging to a kind of bondage. And Paul says that therefore that we need to accept them. Don't reject them. Bring them into our fellowship. The issue with these weak brothers, as we said last week, the issue with them is not that they were trying to bring everyone else into their bondage. Paul wouldn't have tolerated that. He denounced it over and over again every time it came up in any church. These weren't people trying to lead the church down a pathway of legalism. The issue is not that these weak believers were wanting everyone to necessarily conform to their way of thinking. The issue is that they were weak, meaning that they were prone to stumbling. They were likely to stumble Having watched you exercise your freedoms in Christ, they were likely to stumble, and that's why Paul calls them weak. And Paul says, though, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And your temptation would be to be frustrated with their hang-ups, to focus on how it shackles you, to think so much about how it... it uh, you know, puts unnecessary restrictions on you. You might be tempted to quarrel with them or you might be tempted just simply to avoid them because their austerity is such a downer in your Christian life. But Paul says you can't do that. You can't despise them. Literally, it's a word for looking at something as worthless. You wouldn't exclude them. 
Paul says. You have to accept them. Secondly, if you are one of those who do struggle in these areas of conscience, he says, don't judge those who do have freedom. So you're the one who legitimately is bothered by some of these things. And Paul's command to you is, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you, he says, to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he'll be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So he understands the tendency on the other side for these these weak believers to begin to pass judgment on those who are free, to become convinced that there's no way that these people could be pleasing the Lord, that those who are doing these things are clearly in sin. And so the temptation for them is to condemn them, to conclude that God has rejected them, that they are not God's people or not within God's favor, to decide that since God rejects them, you therefore are also justified in rejecting them. And Paul says no matter how you uh, conceive of these things in your mind, no matter how convinced you are in your mind of these matters, He wants you to recognize that it is not you who makes the standard by which others are judged. Who are you, he says, to pass judgment on the servant of another? What makes you think that you can make the rules? Don't have such an inflated view of yourself, he says. Which really took us to our third principle that equips us to receive one another, which is just simply... As we said in verse 3, remember how God has accepted you. Remember how God has accepted you. That's what he says there. For those who want to reject their brother or abandon fellowship with him, Paul reminds them of the most important principle, God has welcomed you. And so if God has been so patient, so patient with the weak, we need to be patient with him. If God has been so accepting, so accepting of the free, then we need to accept them because of Christ. And so everything is driven by the gospel. And you really may believe that you know a lot about what the Bible commands and what the Bible forbids. You may really believe that you have grasped the the do's and the don'ts and the rights and the wrongs and the just and the unjust and all these things. But if you cannot find a way to get along with your brothers and sisters who disagree with you on these matters, it reveals that you still have very little understanding of the gospel. Because the issue in the end is not who has more knowledge, who can win an argument, who can prove their point. The issue is who can demonstrate the grace and love of the gospel in the way that they have received it from Christ. That's the foundation. Now that brings us this morning to a fourth principle that equips us to accept those who are in disagreement with us in matters of conscience. And that, beginning in verse 5, is that we need to recognize that others are participating or abstaining for the glory of God. You need to recognize that. That there are other people who legitimately have different ideas than you do, different preferences, different convictions, different opinions. 
There are people who have different ideas of you on these matters of conscience, and they're following their conscience to the glory of God. You can see this principle beginning in verse 5 as he raises a, really a second kind of illustration, one which has to do with holy days, special days set apart to the Lord. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Paul is introducing, here he's mixing here now the second issue of days. Holy days, observing days, honoring one day above another. And he really doesn't say anything more than that. We don't know necessarily what kind of day he's talking about, but we know from other contexts in the New Testament that the Sabbath day was an ongoing controversy within the early church. And it's not surprising with Jewish Christians coming into the church, Sabbath was what such an important principle in their upbringing that they do no work on the Sabbath. You go in the Old Testament and you find the rules of the Sabbath. It, it, it forbid people from picking up sticks. It forbid them from even lighting a fire on a Sabbath. And Jews were very fastidious about observing this, particularly in the first century. Paul dealt with it in the churches of Galatia and he dealt with it in the church of Colossae when apparently some Jewish elements were beginning to try to bring this tradition, this Old Testament restriction into their Christian life and into the church. Some of them even here in Rome apparently were still struggling with this idea. And so for these brothers and sisters, this became an issue over which they stumbled. And they couldn't believe that their Gentile brothers and their Gentile sisters would do work on the Sabbath or would do work on some other holy day, whatever the day was. They couldn't believe that God would actually be pleased with anyone who did such a thing. Now, Paul makes it clear in other places that we as Christians are not obligated to any Sabbath, whether it's a Saturday Sabbath or a Sunday Sabbath or whenever you want to put the Sabbath. We're not obligated. We're not bound as Christians to that. He says very clearly in Colossians, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Paul's very clear on this issue. And the point that he's making here is not the validity or the lack of validity on either side because The point here is not the objective arguments you might make from Scripture. It is the subjective conscience of each person. Paul's not, uh, if you will, he's not exploring the full depths of every issue whenever he raises them. He's not trying to argue for the freedom uh, on this issue, though he was very clear on it. What he's concerned about is not the objective Uh, arguments and realities of this. What he's concerned about is the subjective perception 
of each Christian. And so he lays down this principle here in verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That is paramount. That you are fully convinced in your own mind. Now listen, when he says that, each one should be fully convinced. Convinced of what? Well, convinced of this. Convinced that you are doing what pleases the Lord. That's what you must be fully convinced about. That is what is so important. That is what you must hold on to above all other things. This commitment in your heart that you will do nothing which displeases the Lord. He's assuming, in other words, that all these people that he's writing to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and would want to bow to His will no matter what. And in this particular matter, matter, you are persuaded that it is the Lord's will in a certain way regarding these questions. Some will be persuaded it's God's will another way. But the main point right now is not which argument is right. The main point is that you, in your heart, are continually bowing before the Lordship of Christ. And you cannot bow before the Lordship of Christ if you believe the thing you are doing is displeasing to Him. You can't do it. No matter how many arguments you listen to, no matter how much people have talked to you, if you are still convinced in your heart is displeasing to the Lord, you cannot at one time bow to that thing and at the same time bow to Christ. Can't serve two masters. See, the issue that Paul is raising here is not the act itself. The issue is your willingness to act against Christ. To act in a way that is violating your commitment to Him. This is why Martin Luther said so famously in his speech at the Diet of Worms, to act against the conscience is neither right nor safe. I mean, he was pressed. He was pressed from every angle to recant on his beliefs. And he said, unless a man is convinced by conscience and by the Scripture... He cannot go against his conscience. So Paul's concern here is that we guard our conscience. He doesn't want you to train yourself to override that sense of uneasiness or conviction that rises in your heart. Or if you convince yourself to ignore that in these disputable matters, Paul understands you can easily begin ignoring it when very clear matters of sin arise. So the starting point... In all of this, the starting point is is to respect the fact that each one of us must bow before the Lordship of Christ. And we might even say it this way. The starting point is to respect the fact that the person who may not be following the same uh, uh, understanding that you have, or even the same persuasion, the same conviction, the same conscience that you have, the person who may be at odds with you, may at the same time be fully convinced in their mind that they are bowing to the Lordship of Christ. Because their conscience reflects what they really believe pleases Him. So above all that, Paul says, you have to protect that. You have to be fully convinced in your mind. You know, my 
power cord for my uh, laptop went out this week. And, uh, you know, you never really think about it a whole lot until it goes out. And you can have all kinds of wonderful things and programs and and documents on your computer, but if you don't have power, they're not going to do you any good, right? See, Paul understood that the the power supply, the, the energizing element, if you will, in your obedience to whatever it might be, is this lordship of Christ. And he understood the need for you to protect this lordship of Christ. He understood that this is what energizes your quest to understand the Bible because if you want to find out what His will is, if you want to be hungry to know what His will is, you first of all have to have a desire to do it. But if you do damage to that commitment in your heart, if you open up the door to doing things that you believe are displeasing to God, then you begin to teach your mind that it's okay to do that, you will soon find that what energizes you to discover and do the will of God is gone. Suddenly the will of God will mean nothing to you anymore. So Paul says guard that. That's the starting point. Each person must do whatever they're fully convinced of in their own mind and their own conscience. Paul's not, by the way, advocating some relativism here. He's not suggesting that we should uh, jettison the Scripture and make up our own rules. He understands, though, that what, what energizes your obedience to the Scripture is this lordship. And so if you lose this idea of Christ's lordship, you're going to lose your hunger for the Word of God. So Paul lays that down, and then he expands on it by, by emphasizing the place of the lordship of, of, of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he talks not only about Sabbath days, but also sort of reintroduces this idea of foods. The one observes the day... And he observes it in honor to the Lord. The one eats, the one who eats, I should say, eats in honor to the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. It might be difficult for you to comprehend that the person that you disagree with on these matters is actually just as devoted to God as you are. Maybe even more devoted to God than you are. The person who disagrees with you, even if their conscience is weak, even if it's ill-informed, in their weakness, they are as highly devoted to doing what pleases Christ as you are. At the same time, the weak brother also needs to realize that the brother or sister who is exercising their freedom can also exercise that freedom in honor to Christ. Oh, no, there's no way. They can't be honoring Christ. You see what they do on the Sabbath? Do you see the kind of foods they eat? Do you see the kind of entertainment they're, they're pursuing? Paul says, look, you may not be as free as them, but you have to understand. But if they are pursuing and using their freedom while honoring Christ in their hearts, while giving thanks to Christ in their hearts, God is the one that's going to take care of them. In our own day, as I said, it could be all kinds of things. Clothing choices, education choices, healthcare choices, the way you use money, don't use your money. Whatever you're doing, whatever your, whatever your fellow brothers and sisters are doing, they're trying to honor Christ, trying to give honor to Him 
trying to do what is going to be pleasing to Him. And you need to begin with that assumption. Begin with that assumption. See, that's going to make it easier for you to accept them. Not necessarily agree with them. Not necessarily comply and conform to them. Not necessarily begin doing what they're doing. Not jettison everything that you know in the Scripture to be right and true. But you're going to be able to accept them. Because even though you have differences with them, they're trying to honor Christ as much as you are. Paul says in verse 7, None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. That's the definition of Christian life. Your supreme goal is to do what pleases the Lord, to live to the Lord, to die to the Lord, and everything in between. So it's comprehensive. We no longer live for ourselves. We don't even die for ourselves. We don't demand to have ultimate say in the way we live. We don't demand to have ultimate say in the way that we die. We don't demand to have ultimate say in whatever happens to us. Paul says in verse 9, For this end, Christ died and lived again, so that He could be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is the very reason why Christ died and rose again so that he might be Lord of the living and the dead. You say, well, what is that all about? What he's saying here is that God desired to have a people who from the inside out genuinely wanted to please God. This is what he didn't have in Israel. What he had in Israel were a bunch of people who put on a bunch of rituals and did a bunch of outward acts of worship but never had the heart to worship him. They had what the Old Testament call hearts of stone. And so God had to come and take that heart of stone out of them and give them a heart of flesh. And the way that he did that, the way he accomplished that, was through the death and resurrection of Christ. See, people aren't naturally born wanting to do the will of God. They're not naturally born wanting to obey the Lordship of Christ. You were not born wanting to obey the Scripture. You were born like everyone else was born, a sinner, dead, it says, in your flesh, dead in your trespasses and sins, unawakened to the things of God. And so what God did in order to establish His Lordship is He died on the cross, taking your place under the wrath of God so that all God's wrath was poured out on Him and all of your guilt can be wiped away. And now having your guilt wiped away, He rose from the dead to overcome death so that you could live. See, the penalty of sin was death. And Christ overcame it by His resurrection. And that death is not only something that happens to you physically, it's also something that happened to you spiritually. You were born dead. And by the resurrection of Christ, He not only wiped away your sin with His death, by the resurrection of Christ, He provides for you to have life from within so that you can bow before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said over in Titus chapter 2. He says, Christ gave Himself for us so that He might redeem us from every lawless deed 
and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is why Christ died and lived again. So that you, who were spiritually dead, can be awakened, can become alive in your heart to the things of God. And so this now is every Christian. No, no one is a Christian who doesn't experience that. No one is a Christian who doesn't understand that awakening from within inside of them. And so no one is a Christian who doesn't bow in, in their heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in this way. And so for us to live is Christ and for us to die is Christ. And so every Christian is this way. You have to understand that. And so if there is a Christian, they're wanting to do the will of God. Now, they might be doing it ill-informed. They might be doing it in ways that are even sometimes damaging to themselves or damaging to people around them. But the place you must begin, if you're going to receive them, welcome them, accept them, the place you have to begin is to accept the fact that what they're doing, they're trying to please God. They're trying to please Him. You know, you, you give your kids a job, put a paintbrush in their hand and a gallon of paint and you put them in a room and you say, paint these walls. And you come back and the walls are green and the carpet is green and the, you know, the ceiling is green and the chairs are green. And you have to begin, not by correcting all the things they did wrong, you have to begin by acknowledging that you had a child who did what you asked, who just wanted to please their parents, who just wanted to obey. And they needed, you know, to understand boundaries and lines a little bit more, but their heart was to do the right thing. This is the love that Christ shows to us. Paul says in verse, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ grips us because we have concluded that one died for all therefore all died and that those that he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised this is us we see what Christ did we are transformed from the inside he gives us life within and now his Will, his life is like an irresistible magnet that pulls us deeper and deeper into the lordship of Christ. I mean, just tremendous lordship theology that Paul is giving to us here. This is the normal Christian life. That everything we do, we do to please him. That's why Paul could say to the Ephesian elders, I don't count my life as having any value to myself, nor as being precious to myself. If... I may only finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our refrain. That's our song. And so we have to guard that, you understand? We have to protect that. We have to, we have to make sure nothing touches that. That is the energizing core. That is the energizing factor of our life. And if you begin to waver in that or compromise in that, if you begin to fold on that issue and begin to do things that you are not fully convinced in your mind are pleasing to the Lord, then you have unplugged the energy source of your Christian life. You've unplugged the energy source of doing the will of God. 
on the other side of the coin, you need to recognize that those brothers and sisters who have different opinions on matters of conscience are hopefully doing the same thing. They are honoring Christ the best they know how. The best understanding of the word that they have. Their devotion is strong. Their love for the Lord is strong. Those brothers and sisters who are exercising freedom may not appear to be taking their religion very seriously, as seriously as you, and you can't imagine how what they're doing is honoring to the Lord or how God could be pleased with them, but in their heart, their aim is to use all of their freedoms, not to indulge their own flesh, but they are using their freedoms to advance the kingdom of God and to serve His will. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I might share with others in its blessing. So those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Not as if I'm outside the law of Christ, he says. So that I might win those outside the law. Paul says, I use my freedoms. I use my freedoms to reach people outside. Advance God's kingdom. Do His will. He wasn't outside the lordship of Christ. That was a governing principle. He says, I'm not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. But within that love of Christ, I exercise my freedoms out of devotion to Him. So if you're going to be able to accept one another, welcome one another, as God has accepted you, you're going to have to recognize that even those who share different opinions and different convictions may very well be just as devoted as you are. No, no, there's no way. They can't be as devoted. No, they're they're reprobates. I'm going to reject them. Well, just be careful. Because God's not rejected you. Which really brings us to our fifth principle that equips us to receive those in matters of disagreement over conscience. And that is to remember that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He says in verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul's saying, remember this. You're going to be judged. You're going to be judged. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not lest you be judged. Why? Because with the same standard that you judge others, you'll be judged. You got no patience? You got no mercy. You have no long suffering. You have no recognition of the grace that you've received. And you stand before God and you want to appeal to all that mercy and grace and love for yourself. Jesus is warning you might have a hard time. You might have a hard day. And Paul is appealing to us here 
We need to remember our own judgment. He's not urging you to adopt a live and let live attitude. He's not telling you that you can have no accountability. He's not saying that you can't talk to brothers and sisters about areas of of disagreement. And he certainly is not even addressing issues which are clearly defined in Scripture. He's talking about these disputable matters of conscience. And he's reminding us that in the way that we treat our brother and sister in these kinds of disputes will be as much of a concern to God as how well you have defined and followed your rules. So, as he said back in verse 3, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Why do you do that? The implication is because you don't understand. You haven't contemplated the own, your own judgment that you will stand under. Or you have assumed that God is going to somehow accept you with some kind of mercy that you can't show to others. You know, it's interesting, he quotes here out of Isaiah 45, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue confess to God. He quotes that out of a chapter whose primary point, or at least one of the main points of Isaiah 45, is that I am the Lord. Yahweh, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. And he's just making the point over and over and over again to Israel. You will be held accountable, not to your idols, not to something else. You will be held accountable to me. It's not your idol that you have to please. And in this case, Paul is, is, I think, suggesting it's not some other person that you have to please. You have to remember You are not the judge. You're not the one who will be sitting on the seat. These brothers and sisters are going to be held accountable to God and you yourself are going to stand before that judgment seat. And so you, you need to say, as Paul says, by the mercies of God, that God has welcomed you. He has accepted you. That He has overlooked all of your shortcomings, unless you suppose you don't have them. He's overlooked all of those things and accepted you. So accept your brother. Accept your sister. Bring them into your circle. Bring them into your fold. You want to know what the will of God is in your situation? You want to know what God would have you to do in your situation? This is the good and acceptable will of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice that you present yourself to do his will and his will is that you show the mercy and grace that he's shown to you well let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a psalm but while you're standing I just want to appeal to you this morning All this stuff about differences and opinions really has never maybe brought you in because honestly you have never really had that much concern about pleasing the Lord. You come here maybe all the time, maybe occasionally because someone has drugged you here but there's no heart in you to do God's will. So you don't fret over it. You think you're better off. Well listen, if that's you If your purpose in life is not to do everything that pleases God, if your purpose in life is just to get through it, 
There awaits for you a dangerous day of judgment because that is not the life of a Christian. Life of a Christian is someone who's been transformed from the inside, who bows their knee to Christ and they want to do everything they can to please Him. Sometimes it leaves you in difficult spots. Sometimes it, it means that, that you, know, you are at odds with even some of your friends. But this is the heart of every true believer. From within, they've been born again. They've been made new. The heart of stone that they had towards God has become a heart of flesh. If you haven't experienced that transformation this morning, we want to encourage you. We want to encourage you to cry out to God, to confess your callousness to Him, to ask Him for that kind of transformation. Father, we're grateful this morning for the gospel. We're so grateful for how it has brought us near for the death and resurrection of Christ. He overcame death on our behalf. He rose again so that we can have new life. And Lord, having shown us that much grace, we understand our whole life is His now. Help us to bow before His Lordship continually. Help us to to even honor our brothers and sisters who are in their best efforts doing the same. And Lord, I pray that You would use these attitudes, these principles to unite us in the gospel and in Christ for the sake of your kingdom and your name. Amen.